Why are we still arguing about Freud? There's something insistently grudging about the book that really Freud can't be credited with anything. George Prochnick will be here to talk about a new book by Frederick Cruz, Freud, The Making of an Illusion. Who was James McGill Buchanan and how did he help empower the radical right in America? So that really left a kind of flint in his soul that he talked about in his autobiography, a kind of resentment of what he saw as this Northeastern elite. Nancy McLean, author of the new book, Democracy in Chains, will join us to explain. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. George Prochnick joins us now. He reviews a book on our cover this week called Freud, The Making of an Illusion by Frederick Cruz. George, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. And I should also say he is the author of many books, including most recently Stranger in a Strange Land, Searching for Gershom Sholem and Jerusalem, which came out earlier this year. That's right, in the spring. All right. So let's talk about this book by Frederick Cruz. And let's start off with the author. Who is Frederick Cruz? Well, he's both had a distinguished career as a professor of literature and also for many decades has been exposing different fallacies and blunders in Freud's career as a scientist. And particularly, he's been concerned with the lack of experimental corroborability of a number of Freud's theories. And mm-hmm. he's, he's illustrated in this book at great length and in great detail the blunders that Freud made in the early years of his career is the focus. The book itself is not shy about where he's coming from. I think right on the jacket, it says, from the master of Freud debunkers, the book that definitively puts an end to the myth of psychoanalysis and its creator. So this is not a straightforward biography of Freud that he's written. No, the the book is not a traditional biography because it focuses on the youthful Freud in, in the years before he became an international phenomenon. And it's not so much building an argument as creating a, a kind of mosaic of scenes and historical interludes that demonstrate the ways Freud came at the patients and theories that would ultimately coalesce into psychoanalysis. That said, One of the main points that Cruz makes is that psychoanalysis as such doesn't exist. In fact, in in the concluding passage of the book, I'm paraphrasing, he says that psychoanalysis is whatever particular practicing analyst says it is at any given moment. And this he positions as one of the one of the ways that he damns it as a traditional science. So why is he writing about Freud his early years? He wants to show that the genesis of Freud's theories was biologically faulty mm-hmm. and that he himself could be very careless in his experimental methodology. I mean, that's putting it in much more tactful language than Cruz uses, which uh, it, it's a book filled with lots of pejorative, agitival framings of, mm-hmm. of the different arguments that he makes. But he's you know, he's tracing key, key moments that led Freud to decide that psychoanalysis as a therapeutic discipline uh, was a breakthrough science and one that uh, had the potential to really revolutionize psychology as such. I mean, it's interesting, like, why is he making this fervent an argument now? It's not like we're living in a moment where everyone is sort of beholden to 
Freudian ideas, Freud has, I don't know if debunked is the word, but he's sort of been put into context. And, you know, this is kind of the age of psychopharmacology and cognitive behavior therapy. And it doesn't seem like he's this towering figure that needs to be knocked down right now. Well, one of the things about the book that I found disappointing is that Cruz begins it with what's really a very important question, which is, why is it that someone whose psychotherapeutic model is really no longer adhered to by any mainstream figures in psychology, certainly not adhered to exclusively, has retained, as Cruz suggests, the cultural capital of Shakespeare and of Jesus Christ? And that's a very interesting question. And he does remain, in fact, as Cruz says, as great a 20th century sage as exists. But that's not what Cruz chooses to investigate. And the reasons, I believe, that Freud has found such an, uh, a sustained and salient influence on our ideas about the mind go well beyond any of the specific scientific failings of mm-hmm. his theory. I mean, Auden, in a, in a famous obituary poem about Freud, describes him as it having become a whole climate of opinion. And there are so many ways that we have absorbed core ideas of psychoanalysis that we walk around with not even directly tying them to Freud. And Freud has also opened up lots of new and compelling ways to think about different cultural events and figures. He's not just the often blundering and certainly struggling young man that Cruz wants in some way to make us fixate on as an absolutely deplorable figure. So Cruz does not allow for the possibility that Freud raised important questions and that some of them he even perhaps answered correctly or in an interesting and and, and helpful way in terms of moving our understanding of psychology forward. Absolutely. I mean, I, I feel that Freud was able to create an architecture of the psychology that allowed us to understand the ways that memories, fantasies, and observations of the present and our everyday life were constantly bleeding into each other. Mm -hmm. That our motivations for what we did were never as simple as we like to believe. And he considered himself in that sense in the same tradition as Copernicus and Darwin, because he said, you know, there are three great narcissistic illnesses. And Copernicus disillusioned us of the idea that the sun revolved around the earth. Darwin disillusioned humanity of the idea that human beings were the zenith of evolutionary development in a hierarchical sense and made us understand that the laws of evolution apply blindly and universally to all organic life. And Freud, uh, one way that, that he thought of what he'd done was to make, he made us understand that the ego is not the master of its own house, that, you know, that our conscious mind is the tip of an iceberg. And I think particularly in an era when ego is so flagrantly on display and when narcissism is so extravagantly expressed it's good to remember that there are these depths that complicate our self-presentation. What Cruz does in this book, it sounds like, is not just critique or attack Freud's ideas, but also sort of goes after him 
on a human level. In your review, you say, here we have Freud, the liar, cheat, incestuous child molester, woman hater, money worshiper, chronic plagiarizer, and all around nasty nut job. It's pretty relentless. Cruz spends an inordinate amount of time on going over the story of Freud's probable affair with his sister-in-law, Mina. Um, This is something that's now been public knowledge for decades that this probably occurred. But there's something oddly prudish and inconsistent about what he does with this. For one thing, one of the, I think, incorrect aspects of this book is Cruz's suggestion that Freud was a true misogynist, a deep misogynist. I mean, there are many, many ways in which what Freud did in terms of recognizing female desires equal in significance to male desire, for example, were were liberating for women. But on the one hand, he suggests that Freud was constantly hostile to women. And then he also says that in this affair, in fact, Mina became a kind of muse and influenced Freud theoretically at many different stages in his own development. And so I don't know why her status as a female means less than that of other women. Cruz also says that the ways in which Freud attacked the repressive morality of his age, which was really a problem. And and one thing that I write about is that the book makes it sound a bit as though human understanding of sexuality and of the essential universality desire was just growing and enlarging just fine before Freud came along and sort of made us all subject to his own strange obsessions. This wasn't the case. And you you don't have to read very far in early 20th century literature, let alone 19th century literature, to understand the, the crippling effects of the social mores of the time. But Cruz is so resistant to the idea of crediting Freud with anything that when he notes that Freud, in fact, did become something of an activist against this strict code of morality, it's only because Freud was trying to justify his own marital infidelity, his own sexual dissatisfaction Mm -hmm. with his wife, his own, in some way, really heinous affair with his sister-in-law. So there's something insistently grudging about the book that really Freud can't be credited with anything. And if we come back to the idea that... He comes up with the most negative possible interpretation of every... And, won't, and anything that he does right, it's it's by accident. Right. It's, you know, it, one one of the concerns of the book is to show that Freud's disciples changed the timeline of the development to make it seem that psychoanalysis sort of was born fully articulated at a very early stage. And in fact, it's possible to show that this timeline was incorrect and that the theories were evolving for a long time. I I don't personally find that such a damning discovery. You know, I don't see why Freud should have stopped developing, stopped trying to further complicate and make further nuanced some of his arguments. But in the end, Cruz concludes that what Freud was doing in his early years was pushing, in in Cruz's words, pushing a brand. And that all he later did was to prop up the brand of psychoanalysis. This is an idea enormously at odds with the notion that psychoanalysis has no consistent identity and that it is whatever a particular psychoanalyst says it is at any moment. A brand, if nothing else, is a cohesive product that you can recognize its its look, its feel, its sound, its taste, whatever. Psychoanalysis is variegation 
is the opposite of a, a brand and arguably speaks more to one of the strengths of it, of, of the discipline, which is that it's really about individuals. Is there any truth to anything he says? Like, would you say that Freud was someone who was self-promotional or, you know, is there, is it that he, it, that he's working off of a sort of nugget of truth, but then misinterpreting it? Or? I would almost put it the reverse. It, there's lots of truth in the book. There's mm-hmm. lots and lots of truth in the details, but I would say that they're interpreted in, in such a biased way that the overarching theses of the book don't hold together and ignore the, the question with, with, that the book opens on, which is right. why does he matter so much? That sounds he, like very Freudian. It sounds like he inadvertently proves Freud to be right. You know, I, I tried to avoid using that term in, in, in the review, but there's a, there is some kind of compulsion to repeat at work. I think in the fact that, that Cruz goes back and back and back to, to attack psychoanalysis as a science when it's not really being defended as a science at this moment. All right. Well, it will be no surprise to our listeners who then go to check out the review of this book that it is not a glowing review, but a really interesting essay about why Freud continues to be sort of worth attacking to begin with and and why his ideas still need to be wrestled with. So, George, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. George Prochnik is the author of several books, including Stranger in a Strange Land, Searching for Gosham Sholem in Jerusalem, and Putnam Camp, Sigmund Freud, James Jackson Putnam, and the Purpose of American Psychology. And he reviews on the cover this week a new book by Frederick Cruz called Freud, The Making of an Illusion. Nancy McLean joins us now. She is a professor of history and public policy at Duke University and the author of a new book called Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. Nancy, thank you for being here. I'm pleased to be with you. This is a timely subject, but but when did you get started on this book? I started the book actually about 10 years ago, and I was researching a subject that would have appeared unrelated, but once I got into the archives and started following the trail, it led me to the crisis in our current politics. Unhappily and happily hitting it right during a timely moment. What is the book about? The book is about really, at its most basic, the story of two men, an intellectual, an economist who was born in Tennessee and spent most of his life in Virginia institutions, and a CEO who is more familiar to Americans named Charles Koch. And the story is of how James Buchanan, this economist who came to Virginia at the time Virginia was leading the white South, the states of the the South, in a fight against Brown versus Board of Education, how he began to develop a new school of political economy at Virginia in that period, especially crucially between 1956 and 1964, and how the ideas that he then developed led him to think that what was needed was to enchain democracy. Mm-hmm. And what I show in the later parts of the book is how Charles Koch and now his donor network saw in those ideas what Koch calls a technology that could enable him to break through and achieve the kind of radical change in American institutions that he had long sought but did not know how to achieve because his ideas were basically so unpopular each time that they were tested when they failed under their real name. Well, so we've all heard of the Koch brothers of, of Charles and, and David Koch and their influence on American politics. And of course, Jane Mayer wrote the book Dark Money. But most people probably have not heard of James McGill Buchanan. Why is that? 
Yeah, I think there are several reasons for that. I mean, one is that Buchanan was not a figure like Milton Friedman, who craved the limelight. Mm -hmm. Buchanan was very comfortable to do his work among like-minded thinkers, out of the public view, you know, to to work with his donors and to work with uh, libertarians and to work in, you know, his particular wing of academia. And the sad truth is that most critics of what is sometimes called neoliberalism, sometimes called free market fundamentalism, do not actually read the theory, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Someone pointed out to me. And so if you don't do that reading, you really can't understand the ideas. And the ideas now are expressed in our politics in a kind of code. And you really need to understand where the that it is a code, mm-hmm. and then you need to understand the ideas to break that code. So I feel that that's what my book does. And you're quite right. There have been you know wonderful works by journalists following the money trail in our politics. But what we haven't had is attention to the ideas that mm-hmm. are guiding all this. And therefore, it's hard to understand the operational strategy and what the true end game is of all of this dark money that's shaping our politics. So you mentioned Milton Friedman, another economist who is generally associated with libertarianism. But was Buchanan a libertarian? And I ask this because he wrote a book, 1975, called The Limits of Liberty, in which he said, despotism may be the only organizational alternative to the political structure that we observe, which sort of doesn't sound like libertarianism. Yes, you raise a really interesting question uh, and and a challenge, I think, for the libertarian cause, which is that it's uh, at least its main thinkers and its organizational architects have been so committed to economic liberty for individuals and for the minority that that has led them to a deep suspicion of, and in many cases, hostility to democracy, because they put the emphasis on what the individual is allowed to do with his or her property in a, a manner that in the book I call property supremacy. I mean, I don't know how else to, to get at it, but it is really antithetical to longstanding American traditions of having the majority be able to determine public policies that make sense for all of us. And people in this cause often try to say that they are working from the ideas of the founders and that somehow America has lost its way. But actually, James Madison was still alive when some of these ideas began to appear in the 1820s of this radical economic liberty, minority rights tradition. And he was appalled and he said it would be the the death of free government everywhere. So yes, this, this notion that that individual property holders in the ideal world should have veto rights over what the majority is is able to do in a democracy is a deeply radical right idea, deeply subversive of our institutions. And that's part of why these ideas have been so unpopular when expressed to the public in ways that they could understand. And the classic example of that was Barry Goldwater's 1964 run for the presidency, which the libertarian cause backed avidly. And he's not really remembered for this today, but he was actually carrying much of the domestic agenda that the libertarian cause uh, supported from calling for the privatization of Social Security, in effect, to ending Social Security as social insurance, to wanting to sell off the Tennessee Valley Authority to privatize it and sell it off to private utility owners, to calling for flat taxes, to opposing the power of labor unions in his day, and opposing the Civil Rights Act. And those were all positions that libertarians backed, but Goldwater was terribly unpopular. He only won in his home state and the five states of the Deep South that practiced extreme voter suppression. So that was the experience again and again. Same with Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan you know, said government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. But once he realized 
realize how unpopular it would be to make radical cuts in Social Security and other such programs. He drew back from the brink. You know, by 1982, he had drawn back from the brink of what this cause wanted. So they were left very frustrated. And so that's part of what the book is about, is helping people to understand how frustrated Mm -hmm. uh, these libertarian thinkers and, and donors have been with the failure of their ideas to make it through normal politics. And that is why the Koch Donor Network adopted the kind of strategy that they did to effectively take over the Republican Party with the threat of primary challenges to any sitting elected official who doesn't toe the line. All right. Before we get further into the sort of contemporary repercussions of these ideas and and the the way in which they have been funded and, and spread, I want to go back to James McGill Buchanan, the man. He was an economist, an academic. Tell us a little bit about who he was how he became an economist and what his work in that area was before he became involved in politics. He was a very smart man, born in Tennessee in 1919. He was the uh, grandson of a populist governor. Uh, and there's an interesting story there that I won't uh, derail us with here. So he had some kind of, you know, populist uh, leanings in in his upbringing. And a uh, formative experience for him was when he got to New York to do his service in the Navy in World War II, he was passed over for the products of Ivy League schools for, you know, people he saw as the Northeastern elite. And he himself had wanted to go to Vanderbilt, but had to go to Middle Tennessee State Teachers College because of the Depression and they couldn't afford it. But so that really left a kind of flint in his soul that he talked about in his autobiography, a kind of resentment of what he saw as this Northeastern elite. And I think that stayed with him and shaped his politics thereafter. After the military, he went on to the University of Chicago and earned a degree in economics and then went back to two Southern institutions before he came to Virginia in the late 1950s. But I think what he saw in the kind of uh, New Deal political economy that the United States had from the 1930s forward, then followed by the civil rights organizing and the Brown decision, I think he saw in all of those, I think he saw it through a kind of personal lens that this was, again, this Northeastern, in his view, this Northeastern governing class pushing people like him, his people of the South, to do Mm -hmm. things that they didn't want to do. Because there's definitely a kind of emotional edge to, to his thinking and to his work. So part of my task as a scholar, as a historian, was to make sense of that. And I think that that experience loomed pretty large, the sense that he was very smart. You know, he knew he was smart. He had done well in school. He had skipped grades, and yet he was not deemed worthy. He actually, at one point, used the phrase "the great unwashed." That he was a member of the great unwashed. Hmm. So there was there was a real angry edge to this man. And he became an opponent to desegregation. Well, it's interesting. Some of my reviewers, I think, have gone farther than I went in the book. And, you know, I did not see Buchanan saying, you know, I, James Buchanan, opposed desegregation. Mm -hmm. But what he did do was stand up for states' rights as they were understood in the South, you know, at mid-century against the federal government and accuse the federal government of overreach and, again, take a stand for individual liberty, as he saw it, the white, white individual liberty that was being violated by this federal decision. But what all of that entailed was a kind of, um, whether unconscious or willful, blindness to the situation of African-American citizens uh, in the South, to the fact that they were disenfranchised, to the fact that they had no control over 
public institutions mm-hmm. to the fact that, you know, um, the state was beginning to subsidize vouchers to white segregation academies uh, to let white people get away from the Brown decision if they didn't want their children to be educated with blacks. So, you know, as a historian, I am trained to read documents in their context and, and understand behavior in context. So his behavior said, and his, you know, everything I have from his writings didn't necessarily say that his motive was racist, but Mm -hmm. he was certainly willing to exploit the Southern schools crisis in order to advance this, you know, um, ultra free market agenda. How did he go from, you know, the sort of the strict area of, of, of academia and economics to politics? How did he become involved in politics? In what ways did he then apply his economic philosophy to the political arena? I'm glad you asked that because he did found, he and and a few others he was working with at the time, but he was the leader. He founded a new school of economic thought, of political economy that he was later awarded the Nobel Prize for in 1986. And that school of thought is called public choice economics, most broadly, or his particular variant was the Virginia School of Political Economy, you know, unlike the Chicago School. Mm -hmm. And the simplest way, I think, to express this is to say that where the Chicago School made the case for free markets, Buchanan took as his mission making the case against government. And what he did was apply Chicago-style economics to say that, you know, we cannot understand people as groups, right? You know, you shouldn't apply class analysis. You shouldn't apply, you know, whatever, an identity politics analysis or whatever. You should just say that each individual is a self-seeking, rational actor in politics as in economic life, according to this free market economics. And so what he did in particular was to say that we need to understand political actors as seeking their own personal self-interest. And he actually said at one point that he wanted to tear down, that's his verb, the idea of the public interest that everyone assumed was what politicians were competing over at Mm mid-century. You might have a conservative view of that. I might have a liberal view. Someone else might have a radical view. But everyone was arguing that what they were seeking in politics was to advance the public interest and the common good. And Buchanan, as a radical individualist affiliated with this libertarian tradition, wanted to undercut that and to make us think about everybody as seeking only their own self-interest and then Mm -hmm. to try to figure out how exactly they were doing that. So in effect, the whole enterprise was based on projecting bad faith onto other actors, you know, and onto political actors in particular. And I will say that Buchanan spent most of his life doing academic work and trying to advance this particular field. That was his focus. But throughout, he also solicited corporate donors and was supported by right-wing foundations from the very beginning in 1956 forward. And so the ideas that he was developing, he was presenting to them privately as useful for their cause. Uh, And those ideas now have been spread and multiplied by the organization supported by this Koch donor network. And truly, if you look at the state organizations in addition to the national plus the international organizations in something called the Atlas Network. We're talking about hundreds of organizations with huge budgets and, you know, thousands of people on staff who are pushing out these ideas, training politicians on their side in these ideas, and really moving the whole enterprise forward in that way. Well, obviously, in this book, you can see today the, uh, the fruits of all of this. The book, again, is called Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America by Nancy McLean. Nancy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. 
Alexander Alter joins us now with notes from the literary world. Hi, Alexander. Hi, Pamela. So we've got two things to talk about. Yes. So two interesting developments in publishing this week. The first is it's an exciting moment for the science fiction and fantasy writer N.K. Jemisin and for fans of her Broken Earth fantasy trilogy, which is set on this massive continent that has these catastrophic earthquakes. And there's a group of, of beings living on the continent that have a magical power to counteract geological events and draw power from the from the earth. And last week she won the Hugo Award for Best Novel, which is one of the genre's top literary awards. And what's even more remarkable about it is that she won the Hugo Award last year as well, two years in a row that she's won it for Best Novel. And, you know, when she won last year, she was actually the first African-American writer to win for Best Novel, which was pretty remarkable and long overdue. So she's won for the first novel in the series, which is called The Fifth Season. And then this year she won for the sequel, The Obelisk Gate. So that happened, and that was very exciting for her fans. And then this week, the third book in the trilogy came out, and the reviews have come in. It's called The Stone Sky, and it's gotten such raves that people think she might win again. And so it's been an enormously exciting time for her. You know, she has been building up this fantasy series, and it's being adapted into a television series that was recently announced. Right from TNT. At TNT. So this is becoming kind of like a Game of Thrones-level fantasy series, I think, that people are really excited about. And to, to get that major award recognition and then the network backing, I think it's been huge. Well, readers of the Book Review know her as our otherworldly columnist, our science fiction and fantasy columnist, and that is a column that she is the inaugural columnist for and is amazing, let me just add. So if you haven't read her reviews of science fiction and fantasy, it really makes sense to go and, and look them up in the archive. She is a really smart and sharp critic, and she's got a wide range of taste, and she is always on the lookout for science fiction and fantasy by women and by not just white men, let's just say that. Yeah. Um, but, but beyond that, she looks at all kinds of, um, from hard sci-fi to high fantasy, she's really broad-ranging. She's so. so steeped in it, and she finds these really interesting new writers, and I love her reviews, too. So, yes. So congratulations to N.K. Jemison. All right. From one female empowerment story to another. Yes. So another female empowerment story that is happening right now in publishing, the organization Girls Who Code, which was founded by Reshma Sajani, and it's dedicated to teaching girls computer coding skills, is making a major push now into children's publishing, and they're launching an entire franchise with Penguin. They have 13 titles planned for release over the next two years, and it goes across the gamut from, you know, nonfiction coding manuals for preteen girls to activity books and journals. But what's interesting about some of the books that are coming out from Girls Who Code and also from other writers and publishers are that, that, you know, they're now expanding the concept into fiction, I think, as a way to get more kids interested, perhaps kids that maybe weren't leaning, in, you know, towards coding or pr computer programming. So they're kind of couching the coding concepts in these fictional stories, which are about young girls who go to after-school coding clubs and become friends. The one that Girls Who Code is publishing next week is called The Friendship Code, and it was kind of conceived as The Babysitter's Club Meets Coders. And on the same day, Reshma Sajani is publishing a nonfiction coding manual. And it's interesting, of course, that these books are coming out now when there's so much focus on the role of women in technology and the treatment of women in technology, where, you know, women hold just 25% of computer programming jobs and of there's been a lot of attention on kind of discrimination 
and stereotyping, particularly after, you know, the Google engineers memo came out, and that was highly controversial. So I think, you know, with all of that in the news, the the Girls Who Code books are going to get even more attention, and they're kicking off their publication with a women in tech rally in Union Square. All right. Well, let's add to that novels for girls that get them into public service yes. and novels for girls that get them to explore science and, and math or 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 just reading and writing. Certainly. And I, think, <laughs> I mean, I think the focus on coding has a lot to do with a sense that women are underrepresented in technology and also... There has been an, kind of this, uh, I mean, there is the other side to it. There, there's been an emphasis on, you know, these are the jobs of the future and we have to prepare kids. Of course, other people say we don't know what kind of technological skills kids are going to need in, you know, 15 or 20 years. So hammering them to learn, you know, JavaScript and CSS and HTML might not be the best way to use their time when they're reading. We're going to need a lot of more massage therapists to, like, work <laughs> on the shoulders of all of those coders hunched over their devices. Exactly. <laughs> and, of course, you know, and you can see, I mean, this it does get to sort of uh, the level of absurdity when you see board books for babies that are supposedly teaching them how to code. Um, I don't think babies can code. Although they can, they are pretty good Your baby can't code? My babies couldn't, but they could certainly work an iPhone or an iPad. All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Joining us now, my colleagues John Williams, Jennifer Salai, and a newcomer here to the podcast, Concepcion de Leon. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. Let's talk about what we're reading. I've just said off mic that nobody's reading anything good, but I, that's not true. That's not true. Nobody liked that comment. John especially is very offended. He has two books in front of him. What are you reading? Well, it's funny because we got an email from a reader, a listener, I should say, recently who said that they really like when we sort of read after each other and um, pick up each other's threads, which gave me some confidence because I sometimes feel a little bit self-conscious about that because I'm going to take us back to the Emmanuel Carrere fan club. And, you know, I forgot to mention last week that when I was on vacation, one of the things I did was I finished, I read the last 50 pages or so of Lives Other Than My Own, which we've all discussed recently, his his memoir. It's one of the most distinct and sort of emotionally powerful things I think I've ever Did read. You cry? So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you finish it? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I definitely cried at the end. He's a very good writer, I think, a great writer, but he it, there's something austere about the style of it, even though he's talking about people he knows and in some cases loves. And yet by the end, it's sort of it's this very profound kind of examination of like what it means to have people in your life and care about them and, yes. and why those things are important to us. And even though he does it in this somewhat detached way throughout the book, there's this cumulative power to it that's really incredible. So know, it made me feel like, why aren't there more books like this? Yes. Like it's what he did is so unique. I think it, it's so hard to pull off. Yes, I, mean, I felt I, like it was unlike anything I'd, yeah. I'd ever read really I mean, before. I was on the subway, I think, when I finished it and I was crying, yeah. which is, well, it's so New York the subway. The highest so. recommendation in my book is like books that make you cry on the subway. But <laughs> but what is so interesting about that book, too, is I thought it's a good thing that he had a successful career before that book, because like, how would you ever pitch that book to a publisher yeah. that to persuade them that yes. this was a book? Although it's France. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> how did, so how would maybe it have gotten different. translated? Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, it got it made it here. He's got a lot of other books. He started his career writing, I think, more traditional fiction. He's since become he writes these kind of hybrids of autobiography and memoir and fiction. And his most recent book is called The Kingdom, and it's about 
a brief time that he spent himself as a very devout Christian in the early 1990s, I think. And now he says he doesn't recognize that person. And he's not sure why he felt that way. And, and now he's sort of, you know, an agnostic or atheist again. And then it goes back and it sort of retells some, a colleague here called it pre-digested biblical scholarship. But I, since I'm not a biblical, <laughs> I don't read much biblical scholarship. I like it pre-digested. So, and he's <laughs> such a great storyteller that, you know, he goes back and he talks about Paul and Luke and, and some of the, the ways that Christianity in its early years kind of took took root. And I'm about 200 pages into that, and I stupidly left it at the office last night. And so what I read, started last night rereading, which I'd started last year, is A.N. Wilson, the British historian, his book called Jesus, A Life, which is from the early 90s. And this is one of those books that tries to capture the historical Jesus as opposed to, you know, the Jesus from the New Testament and and, in the Gospels. And uh, Wilson is also a very elegant writer. This is more straight history, and I'm also finding that fascinating. So it's I'm kind of on a little subject kick right now. So, Jen, what are you reading? You've got something that looks serious. <laughs> it does look serious. I'm actually, this is also a reread for me. When I was on vacation last week, my beach reading was the Josh Green book about Steve Bannon, <laughs> which was actually pretty interesting to read on the beach. It was a very mm. sort of incongruous We'll talk, we'll talk to you off mic about what beach reading really is supposed to be. Right. We can do that. <laughs> and so now that I'm back, I'm reading another serious book. This is a book called Ghost Waltz by Ingeborg Day. And it was a book that was originally recommended to me, again, by Barry Gouin, who if— um, Our esteemed colleague. I know. I know. He seems to be a reading guy He's for like all of us. He's like slowly controlling us all. <laughs> um, He's very quiet in the office. But, he is. But influential. Um, and so, in any case, a few years ago, there was a reissue of this book by Ingeborg Day, which was originally written in 1980, and it was reissued alongside with the other book, which she is much more famous for, which was written under a pseudonym, and it's Nine and a Half Weeks. And so she wrote that under turned the name— Turned into famously the movie. Turned into the movie, of course. And she wrote that under the pseudonym Elizabeth McNeil. And so this book was written a few years after, and it was written under her real name, and it's about her upbringing, essentially, and her attempt to get away from and also reckon with her family's history because she was born in 1940, I believe, in Austria. And her father was a Nazi, was an actual Nazi. And after the war, they never really talked about anything, and it was only when she was a teenager on a study abroad trip to the United States that she finally understood what happened during mm. the war. And so it's about her attempt to understand who her father was, really mm -hmm. was, and also understand who she herself is having grown up in this very sort of secretive silence. And it's really quite a remarkable book. And Barry actually knew Ingeborg way back mm. when, when she was in New York, living in New York. And so he recommended this book to me. Yeah, I'm trying to connect all of this with Barry, the nine and a half weeks thing. Right. I mean, <laughs> this makes more sense <laughs> to me. But um, <laughs> Yes. Anyway. This is more Barry's wheelhouse. Well, the Barry doesn't listen to the podcast, and so he doesn't know when we talk about him. We talk about him <laughs> all the time, it seems like. 
Pamela, what do you have? You started something last week. I'm still reading Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, which I am really enjoying. And I'm reading it slowly. You know, I, as occasionally happens, I get distracted. And in this case, I was distracted by The New Yorker. And I really resent it because there were two long pieces in it, one about strawberries, which, <laughs> again, I just, I got drawn in. I just, I went down the rabbit hole. And, and I do like strawberries and I am interested in them. Sure. But I read recently, The Times had done a story on strawberries earlier this year that I had read and so I felt like I had had that that covered, but I got sucked in. And then worse, um, there was a very long piece about Julian Assange. And oh, right. I I want to read that. Yeah. Well, you know, carve out a couple days because it's okay. it's really long. It's, it's very interesting. It's very good. But it put me in a terrible mood. And it also kept me from, uh, from Pachinko. So I'm going to talk about what other people are reading. But I first want to introduce Concepcion de Leon and talk about what you're reading. Hi. Well, I'm reading something much lighter than what you guys are reading. <laughs> this weekend, I saw the most recent episode of Insecure on HBO, and it was the best episode yet. I was so obsessed, and I was really sad that it wasn't a full hour long. And I felt like I wanted more of Issa Rae, so I started reading her book, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, which has sort of been on my list for a really long time, but I've never gotten into it. And I just started it recently. And it's so far pretty good. I, I I hesitate to give an opinion so soon because I'm really not far into it at all. But what I can gauge from it so far is that it's not very voicey, which is disappointing huh. because she has such yeah. a strong and interesting voice and funny voice. And this could be because I have a hard time finding books funny in general. Like I, whenever anyone tells me that a book is hilarious and so funny, I'm very, very skeptical. So it could be that I just have something broken. And something <laughs> I want to know what, what books do you think are funny? I don't know that I've ever read a book that it's really made me laugh. Well, you yeah. know, it's interesting because my predecessor here at the Times, this is, I think, his his worst failing, Sam Tannenhouse. Um, and other than that, he was perfect. But but is that he did not believe that books could make you laugh out loud. And so that what? phrase what? would not appear in the book review. Yes. <laughs> yes. Things could not be laugh out loud funny because nobody laughed when they read I, I don't know. I laugh all the time, but apparently— I don't. I cry all the time. Like, I am definitely a serious subway crier. Welcome. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but I—it's really hard to make me laugh. Um, I don't do it often, I but I definitely do it. I mean, it's it's yeah, yeah. it's hard on the page, to, but it's yeah. it's a, but it it's a skill. And sometimes inadvertently. Sometimes it's not supposed <laughs> to be funny, right. but it is. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly had that where there have been funny moments in a book that's not technically, you know, supposed to be humorous. But I can't think of any off the top of my head. I think the first thing, there were two books that made me laugh out loud as a teenager. And it was I read them right about the same time. But one was, and I think I've even talked about them on this podcast, so forgive me for repeating myself. But one was the scene in Slaughterhouse-Five where he gets into the car to drive. He's very drunk. I can't remember. It's Billy Pilgrim. And he's can't find the steering wheel. And he's like, I, I don't understand. Like, I can't, where could it be? Like, I know I've had a lot to drink, but there has to be the steering wheel. And then, of course, he'd gotten into the back seat of the car. And so I, I found that extremely funny that is as funny. a child. I know. No one's laughing here, just for the oh, record. I, oh, but, I'm laughing. Know. That's very funny. Okay. And then the other one was in Catch-22 when 
Hungry Joe is always, you know, having this nightmare, this dream, this recurrent dream that there's a cat sleeping on his face. And then like late in the book, he wakes up and there is a cat sleeping on his face. Okay, you guys are laughing, right? See, it's funny. But no, Conception's not even cracking a smile. She's staring at you. I'm trying so hard. No, I mean, it's funny because you're telling it, right? And there's like the animation of it and I can see your facial expression and I know when I'm supposed to laugh. Maybe I'm just a little socially awkward and I can't really tell unless I'm looking at other people. Well, you haven't sold me on the book, but you've made me remember that I need to catch up on the secure. Talk to yes. me, yeah, talk to me in a week and maybe I can sell you on the book. Okay. You have I'll another book there. I do. Um, this one is very different. It's <laughs> it's called It Didn't Start With You, How an Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. And it's pretty interesting. It's more of a science book. It's talking about how things that may have happened to our grandparents or to our parents can sort of somehow be imprinted in our DNA and affect how we react to certain things now, our flight versus fight response, and just the different ways in in which that can carry over, which I find really, really interesting. All right. I'm going to talk about what the other people out there are reading new on our bestseller list very quickly just to wrap things up. On the fiction side, it's interesting. There are five new books to the list. Four of them are by women, and they're all, I think, sort of healthily within the, a lot of these are thrillers or historical fiction. So we've got at number 14, The Paris Spy by Susan Elia McNeil. At number seven, another debut to the list, but not by a debut author. By the very familiar name to the list, Karen Slaughter has The Good Daughter. And then another recurring best-selling author, Philippa Gregory, has a new book, The Last Tutor, at number six. At number five, a sole entry from a male author, two men, Stuart Woods, also a familiar name on the list, and a co-writer, Parnell Hall, have a new book called Barely Legal. And then at number one, again, another frequent best-selling author, Debbie Maycomer, has a new book called Any Dream Will Do. And then on nonfiction, it's a little bit of a quieter week. Actually, what's interesting is that Neil deGrasse Tyson, who had been knocked off the top of the list, is back up at number one with Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. And I'm going to tie that to the eclipse because I, I see everything right now is tied to the eclipse. And then at number four, the only debut to the list is by Robert Wright. And it is the new book, Why Buddhism is True. Oh, wow. That's all the way up at number four. Yeah. So that is it for bestsellers and for what we're reading this week. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thanks, Pamela. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.